welcome to our weekly podcast of Womankind Collective with me, Lou Hawkins-Thompson and me, Jinty Sheeran. Come and join us as we embark on a fun and educational journey, talking to experts and advocates on subjects that are often taboo. So go and get the kettle on and settle in for a chat and probably a lot of laughter along the way. Today, we are joined by Anna Cooper and Gabs Pearson, co-founders of the Menstrual Health Project, a charity that aims to provide practical support for those suffering with menstrual concerns, such as endometriosis and other conditions at any age. In the book Collective, we discuss Chapter 3, Warriors and Leaders of Femina by Janina Ramirez, and how science is helping us to discover the truth about the gender fluidity of the Vikings. It's a good one. Um, This month's Foodie Collective theme is biscuits, and we have a glorious loaded recipe for you to try and find out how Lou's getting on with our WI. And finally, we will have a great quote for you uh we've had some great comments again lou haven't we oh we certainly did we had um nurture health she said well done ladies she was so looking forward to grabbing a cup of coffee later today oh that was yesterday i think and listening to this lovely podcast and uh happy sunday with much love lovely irene aline boblan says what an episode ladies you've surpassed yourselves listening to um cara uh Giles writes, as I drove to a very early Sunday morning dip in the Avon, felt serendipitous. Yeah, I bet. Mm. Caro's wild river swims, her reflections on her connection with the moon, the challenges of balancing life as a mother and her own identity so much resonates with me. Today, I own that I am Aline Boblan, you know, that French woman who goes on about menopause, whereas for years, I was only Eloise's mum to some. Thank you for giving Caro a voice on the podcast, an inspirational and authentic guest. You know, we knew that would resonate with so many of you. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, she was such an inspiring woman. And your big bro, Neil. Brilliant podcast, sis. Caro was fantastic. Ethel Fled is an absolute star. I'm going to try and find out more about her now. Keep them coming, guys. Yeah, good, good. We need more people to know about Ethel Fled. Um, not your usual menopause, Rachel. She said, finally managed to listen to an episode on Sunday while cleaning the bathroom. Um, yeah, I'm glad we can keep your company in there. <laughs> I, I loved listening to Caro because I, I too look at the moon and feel connected to people I'm not with. It's really a lovely thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. When I'm on holiday, especially abroad, I'll look at the moon and ask it to give my love to the kids. Oh, um, so it makes me feel connected no matter how far away from each other we are. I do a similar thing with a beautiful old tree in the next village that I regularly walk past. If I have any worries, about myself or others I'll ask the tree what others have done in the past because it must have seen it all before I should add that I do all this in my head so that no one around (laughs) me thinks that I'm completely bonkers I I, yeah I what a that's lovely because trees are ancient oh yeah and they have big roots yeah they do and big ears so hopefully if they're listening listening to Rachel um and for the scone rhymes gone rhymes with gone she sees she's agreeing with you i say go not gone (laughs) (laughs) go not thrown (laughs) 
<laughs> and she says, you know my thoughts. However, one of these days I shall make some scones, scones. and demonstrate the, the correct way to add the accoutrements. I'm sorry, Rachel, that she pronounced it wrong again. <laughs> and um, we had the hat challenge, didn't we? We did. Well, that you absolutely bloody failed at. Yeah, rubbish. So Aline um, Boblan, she said she's not managed this one. She failed the WI. Um, she can't get any hat to land on her head so far. Oh, good. So it's not just me. No. Um, and um, we've had a challenge from not your usual menopause, <laughs> Rachel, who says she would pay money um, to now the Menopause Research, Research and Education Fund, Fund. Fund. Um, to see you eat scones with jam scones. on the bottom and cream on, on the top. How's your week been, gents? Well, I've had a bit of a rash on my face, Lee. Yes. I had an IOU from the chemist. They didn't have my usual estrogen. Um, and also, when did people start saying pharmacy instead of chemist over here? I think I've that's very American. I think it is, isn't it? Pharmacy. The pharmacy. And it means Look, slightly different things in yeah, different countries. Chemist. The chemist we in all, some people. But I went, always we, call it the chemist. Yeah, as a young girl, it was always down the chemist. Down the chemist, yeah. But it says on most places pharmacy now. Mm. Anyway, if anyone knows the answer to that, let us know. Um, so I but so I had to use the only thing I had was patches. Issued in patches from 2021. Um, I don't think there's any connection with this rash all over my face. Um, however, thank you to um, Claudia, Claudia for sending me some lovely um, HRT contraband. Um, and, but my chemist has now got mine back. Um, but this led me to, I was looking at the new news this week about the, um, um, have you heard about this, Lou? It's no. a new drug. Um, well, Vioza is a neurokinin um, receptor antagonist. It works by binding to and blocking the activity of NK3 receptors in the hypothalamus, the brain region that regulates body body. <laughs> But regulate your body. It doesn't regulate your body. Well, you might, a lot of people well, might need regulating they, bodies. They might need it. It's got a bit of fiber in I'm it. I'm glad you're saying all these long, 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 I can't even say long words, young words. Tell you what, it's one of them days, Lou, isn't it? Sorry. I was, this, the brain region that regulates body temperature. Um, so you can guess this Vioza is for hot flushes. Um, and it's a pill to be taken once a day. It's not hormonal. Um, and is it effective? You you may ask. You I'm may asking. ask. Is it effective? Well, Vioza underwent two randomized placebo-controlled double-blind phase three clinical trials. And in both trials, Lou, treatment significantly reduced the frequency of moderate to severe hot flushes by about five episodes per day. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, are there any side effects concerns? I hear you all call. I shall answer you. Possible side effects include gastric issues. We were right with the body. Yeah. yeah. Uh, gastric issues and liver issues. Therefore, blood work should be performed before and during a treatment to monitor your liver function. Um, at the moment, I think it's only available in the US. Um, and one concern over there is the pricing of the drug, um, as the 30-day supply is reported to cost $550. So that's alive. like a month. So I don't know. It's currently under review in the EU. <clears throat> um, and what they say is overall, 
Vioza could be a game changer for women who are ineligible for HRT or those interested in alternative treatments. Um, This FDA approval also highlights a growing acknowledgement of menopausal symptoms and the importance of addressing them. So for anyone that um, is struggling with hot flushes and cannot use or doesn't want to use HRT, this might be the way to go. Yes, quite good. Um, and one other thing I came across, across this week, Lou, I'm I'm sorting out a lot of my mum my and dad had a lot of collectible plates like people they used to collect. Lovely plates. They had lovely they have tableware. They have got some really lovely stuff. Um, so I've been investigating said plates um, as to whether it's worth the hassle of, you know, looking into selling some things. And of course, now, because I've been looking online, I'm getting all sorts, all manner of emails, posts and messages regarding plates, <clears throat> like I'm some sort of plate guru um and 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 I don't really know anything about plates so but one thing did interest me Lou was the information do you know what a twiffler is t-w-i-f-f-l-e-r is it a side plate it's the name of a plate it's not a side plate though it was the name of a plate it's just down from the size of a dinner plate but not as small as a tea plate and a muffin was a name of a plate equivalent to a tea or a side plate. To Perf- put your muffins on. To put your muffins or your biscuits that we've got this week mm. for your foodie collective. So we've got a muffin and a twiffler. Oh, who would know? I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my twifflers out later on. Oh, and your muffins. <laughs> How's your week been, Lou? Well, we've had some sunshine, haven't we, in here in oh. glorious Devon. Um, and, I, and as a ginger and a fair of skin, although yeah. I know I have been tanning in the bathroom this week. Plenty uh, of sun in there, Lou. Plenty of sun in that bathroom mm. of mine. Um, it's also actually Skincare Awareness Month in May, which we sort of bypass. Is it's... that why I've come up in a big rash? I think so. Because <laughs> I want to raise awareness. So, you know, I think we've got to seriously think about how how... How how seriously do we take sun protection, especially in the mm. UK? And do you reapply sunscreen throughout the day, even on cloudy mm. days? I'm asking ye the question. So um, there's a research, a collaborative research from Life Jacket Skin Protection and Melanoma, Melanoma, Melanoma. Um, UK, uh, that people are actually putting themselves at risk in grave danger by not protecting their skin as effectively with SPF. Adults have, on average, burned their skin 15 times in their life. I probably have, Hmm. yeah. So according to the Skin Cancer Foundation, five or more sunburns can put you at higher risk of melanoma, the third most, which is the third most commonest uh, skin cancer in the UK. There is especially, this is especially concerning given that life jacket skin protection and Melanoma UK research found that on average, UK adults have burnt themselves 15 times. Additionally, 20% of our adults say they never use SPF. Oh gosh. I know, I've got some stats now for you. Give me them, give me them stats. Right, so of the UK adults who share that they don't use SPF every day, 21%, this was because they rarely burned and they just tan. Mm. One in five said they only use it when they feel like they're burning. 20% of people only remember when prompted by a friend or family member. 16% only use sun cream when they are abroad. And 10% only when the dial goes over 40 degrees Celsius. However, of course... very specific. I know, isn't it just... (laughs) 
However, according to the NHS, there is no healthy or safe safe way to tan, as we know. So they recommend to um, daily use of SPF of at least 30, especially between April to September, mm-hmm. where UV protection, clothing, especially if you have fair skin, monitor your skin if you have lesions that aren't healing and are newly pigmented for more than six weeks, especially in sun-exposed areas. Keep an eye on them. And additionally, the NHS recommend spend time in the shade between 11 and 3, 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Apply sunscreen lotion 30 minutes before going out and then just before leaving. Reapply at least every two hours and reapply after being in water, even if that sunscreen says it's water resistant. Because mm. as towel drying and sweating, it can remove it. So just take care with the sun. Yeah, I don't know how much we're going to have through the summer, but if you're going on holiday, listeners, look and, after yourself. And if you wear a moisturiser or a foundation, get one with SPF in it. You yes. still have to reapply. You still have to put stuff on top yes. if you're out in the sun. But that, at least there's a base. And you, you're supposed to wear that in the winter I see, well. I, I do Because I don't wear foundation. But when I put, I put my SPF on... Um, yeah moisturizer in the morning put my normal moisturizer on then I put this one on the top but what I do I do it the last thing once I've cleaned my teeth and just before I leave the house I put it all on and then I rub it in my hands so when I'm out dog walking or anything my hands are also protected from the hopefully those old lady age yeah those age spots because when you think what um tanning is I mean we might all like a bit of a tan don't we feel good but when when you think I've just looked it up now and it you know what what it actually is it's the increase of production of melanin in an attempt to protect protect the skin from further damage it's it's trying to protect you it's not you know so when you think about what it's actually doing it's It's protecting you but yeah but you're and you're out there doing that on purpose I'm not I'm saying you I've done it I've I've got my lovely tan from the bathroom exactly I'm gonna go I might have a bathroom tan later on especially my legs the best ones yeah so our guests today are 29 year old Anna Cooper and 30 year old Gabs Pearson both endometriosis sufferers who struggled for years with symptoms and were only diagnosed after years of misdiagnosis and professional gaslighting. You know quite a lot about that. Mm. Mum to a six-year-old daughter, Anna, has had 15 operations due to endometriosis, which means she has a a permanent ileostomy bag, a long-term catheter, soon to be a urostomy, plus Anna has to have a full hysterectomy, has had to have a full hysterectomy, which left her with full-blown menopause at 28. Since her endometriosis diagnosis, Gabs has been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, IBS, adenomyosis. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Do you know what? I spelled it out as well. I suddenly looked at it. Sorry. It's a hard word. I've given her the long word. (laughs) She has. has. (laughs) Back pain and bulging discs. Her chronic back pain has become so severe as a direct result of endometriosis that she's had multiple unsuccessful procedures to try and reduce the pain. 
Anna and Gabs connected on social media, becoming Instagram friends and bonding through the mutual demon of endometriosis. They have become more like family and no longer just cyber pals. After many conversations and feeling frustrated and deflated at the lack of information and support, they felt the need to do something. So they founded the Menstrual Health Project, whose mission it is to provide practical support for those suffering with menstrual health concerns and conditions through educational tools and resources to help people navigate more accurately, accurately and comfortably through whatever stage in life they're at. And they want to be heard, empowered so. and informed. Welcome back, Anna. Sorry, Anna disappeared, <laughs> Anna disappeared there for a minute. She's back again. She, she She's back in the room. Back in the room, interrupt, <laughs> interrupting my my uh, introduction <laughs> and actually can we can we start start with you right right at the beginning so we we know that endo endometriosis is a disease in which tissue that is similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside the uterus causing severe pain and can start at a person's first period um when when did it begin for you and I'm going to ask Gabs in a minute but when did it begin for you Anna um, my so I started my periods age 11 and my periods were very painful from the get-go very heavy and erratic um, and that was just my normal from an early age so I just assumed that was what periods were and I would say when it got to I was probably about 14 where it became it wasn't just my periods it was affecting me day to day so it was my bowel movements were so painful I'd have blood in my stool I'd you know UTIs all of the time lower back pain and it wasn't just during my period it was my whole menstrual cycle I was suffering um and I was back and two to the doctors. Thankfully, my mum's a nurse, so she knew like something wasn't quite right. And it probably took 10 GP visits before they even thought that there was something wrong. And they eventually referred me to a pediatrician who said, oh, no, there's like nothing wrong. Um, You're absolutely fine. So got discharged from there. And when I turned 16, they finally referred me to a gynecologist which I thought was a breakthrough unfortunately it wasn't because she just said that the pain was all in my head and that there was nothing wrong with me and that I was just needed to kind of basically uh grow a pair and just get used to the pain because it's part of being a woman so she said she'd sent a uh like a letter back to my GP saying that I needed um like psychiatric support because that it was in going <laughs> in my head and that I was going nuts basically um and what's awful is that you actually think you are going nuts yeah. because everybody around you is telling you that there's nothing wrong but you feel this horrific pain and you you start to question whether am I nuts am I actually you know is this in my head or and I was young so I was 16 being told this and I didn't have the strength to kind of go up against doctors and my mum knew about endometriosis but not enough for it to be on the forefront of her mind mm. um, because I had such wide-ranging symptoms as well as bad periods I had you know like the bowel symptoms and um all the other you know the bladder symptoms so then 
I got rushed in four months later uh, to A&E and I saw a general surgeon and he said it was my appendix. So he rushed me down to have my appendix removed. And then I came out that surgery and he said, um, your appendix is healthy, but I can see endometriosis around it. Um, but I've removed your appendix because it'll only get irritated by the disease. You need to be under a gynecologist to have it all removed. Wow. And so he referred me internally back to the same gynae I'd seen and she flatly refused to agree with his findings. She was like, no, I don't agree with it. So then my dad did his research, bless him, and took me privately to a specialist in Birmingham. And he was an endometriosis specialist. And he took me into surgery within a week. So anyway, we went into that surgery, came back out, and he was like, Anna, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to take you back in in two weeks' time to do major surgery. And I had to have a bowel resection at 17. And... um he was like you're stage four it's all over your bladder it's all over your bowel it's all in your womb sticking your ovaries every like my ovary was stuck to part of my bowel it was just it was horrific and he said that's been there much longer than six months from when she saw me so he looked after me then and a year later I was back in the same amount of pain he operated again and it was back it had grown back so quickly it's just been a revolving door ever since, you know, I've surgery after surgery. Um, so I'm going into my 16th operation next month um, to have my bladder removed because my bladder is um, failed. So it basically doesn't function. Um, and that's what happened to my bowel a couple of years ago. My bowel completely stopped working. So I had to go into hospital every few weeks to have irrigation. And um, they decided to do my first ileostomy in March 2020 as lockdown happened, mm. which was not. It was awful being in hospital as COVID hit because it was quite frightening. Mm. Um, and then it failed my first stoma they'd done it wrong so it sunk under the skin and completely blocked off so I had my second one done the following year and had my large bowel removed and I think that was probably when it really hit me that this disease isn't going away mm -hmm. and it it's not just the disease itself, it's the domino effect it has on everything. You know, you you then living with the consequence of what the disease has done. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realise. And yeah, that's a good, really good point. It's also still going on um, in other areas, isn't it? So obviously it's all still growing because you, you've had a hysterectomy as well. Yeah, so in uh, November 21, I had a full hysterectomy. So I had... Um, normally they don't like to take both ovaries so young um, but the way my endometriosis grew they said there's no point leaving the ovaries behind so they took it out so I was it they took my womb cervix tubes and ovaries and full-blown menopause at the age of 28 is fun oh my <laughs> it, god yeah it's very misunderstood and people assume menopause just affects you at a certain age so when you talk about it to people you know like the hot flushes and the bone aches they look at you as if you're stupid mm -hmm. and I'm like oh I genuinely am in full-blown menopause mm -hmm. no it's yeah. not 
it's not a choice it's it was a necessity at the time but even after a hysterectomy it can still grow back so especially when the disease has grown outside the womb into other areas um it's hard to I, I think it's almost impossible to guarantee that they've removed all the disease mm. so leave a little bit disease behind it can grow yeah. by itself and that is the issue and so then you've got your, your stoma in, with your ileostomy and then you've you've also got full-blown menopause to deal with yeah uh, plus whatever's growing anywhere else the endometriosis and the urostomy as well yes but coming up with yeah that's right with the menopause did, did were they quite good with with that as you know we talk a lot about sort of menopause with with all age groups um did, were they quite good did they give you you they obviously must have given you hrt straight away yeah i've had um I would say probably a few hiccups with it. My gynae is very, my specialist with endometriosis is very good. He made sure I was on the right HRT right from the get-go. So I take estrogel, uh, so the gel, full pumps, and then I have to take a progesterone-only pill because they left a bit of endometriosis behind. So the estrogen obviously feeds the growth of endometriosis, so they have to counteract it with the progesterone. Um, and then I have to take Vagifem uh, pessaries to help. Um, but ever since then, it's kind of left. So I've had a real issue of absorption. So I really struggle to absorb the right amount. Um, so I've then tried patches to see if they help. And again, patches I found were worse. But they don't. Everybody I speak to regard to it says I should be under like a menopause, you know, clinic. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas when I speak to everyone in my medical team, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll get round to it. And then it's never in. Oh. And I just think, especially being so young on it, it's, I feel a bit kind of lost. Yeah. I don't know where to kind of turn. And my GP doesn't she's amazing my GP um and she tries and tries but like she wants to add in testosterone but she can't without a specialist prescribing it because yeah. a GP can't prescribe it so it's just it it's difficult and I've, I've found it really hard to navigate yeah. um especially my mental health as well since being menopausal um it's really um kind of spiraled my anxiety mm. and I developed OCD when uh, my daughter was little and that was through anxiety and I kind of got a hold of it until I became fully menopausal and it came straight back and it's just all of those little things that mount to such a big impact on your life yeah. they don't really monitor yeah, very hard eh? because, like, say, OCD is a very heightened anxiety, isn't it? In it, in itself, that's one thing to deal with, let alone anything else. Mm. But this, this is why we're we're pushing for a menopause clinic here in Devon. Um, yeah. Even though you may have one, you're not even getting that pathway of referral, um, which is madness because you are a complex case. You couldn't get more complex. So for a GP to be left with all those sort of questions um, is 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 complete madness. I mean, a, a specialist would be able to do all that 
for you and look at your te- look at the testosterone and your absorption it's just um yeah well Anna yeah, yeah, it's yeah a it's lot a massive, to cope with. massive Jen and 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 Gabs but how about you and and when question, did it start when did yeah. it start yeah Do you know what as Anna's been telling her story I'm like oh my god it's actually remembering like 20 years yeah. <laughs> of knowledge so similar to Anna I started my periods when I was 10 and when I started them a lot of my friends hadn't started their periods and I feel like sort of like 20 years ago like I didn't really know anyone else starting their periods for me and my periods were cut the same really really heavy excruciating crippling I had so much time off school because of my periods because my stomach and bowel was just horrific and it was always the case my mum thought because she didn't obviously know what was going on or how to kind of I guess support and there was kind of no real help from the doctors we kept going back and forth and I feel like a lot of people that me and Anna speak to, the kind of default was if you were struggling with your periods around sort of 10, 11, 12, they would just put you on a contraceptive pill straight away. Yeah. And that's what I had between like 12 to 17. I tried every single contraceptive pill without any thought because that was the only option. So that was kind of the only lifeline being given. There was no let's look at why your periods are so crippling let's look at these other issues you're having so for me kind of through my teens I kind of feel like my bowel and my stomach issues were so horrific um alongside kind of trying to manage really heavy painful periods and then I had the implant put in which was the worst mistake ever and again I just feel like there's not a real kind of sit down of the pros and cons of different contraception either. And I had it in and out fairly quickly. Um, and then I started back on the pill again. And probably when I was around 18, I started really struggling with my bowel and my stomach again, back and forth in the doctors, basically just being told I had food intolerances and IBS and just to cut dairy out, cut gluten out. And this was at a time to so say 12 years ago when being kind of dairy-free, gluten-free, there wasn't all these options either. It was very bog standard. You know, when you went in the supermarket, it was like a tiny shelf. Yeah. Like items. Yeah. And, then and it was like five pounds for like a rubbish loaf of bread. And it was just, and it wasn't making it any better. And then probably when I was about 20, I started having a lot of gynecological symptoms again. So like really heavy bleeding, like pain during sex, um, like rectal bleeding just every symptom and what's what always strikes me is sometimes like when I've spoken to health professionals and they say oh some people with endometriosis have lots of symptoms some people don't have any and I thought I have never ever met or spoken to someone who has endometriosis who's never had a single symptom Mm, that is just to me an absolute crop personally just my opinion (laughs) Um, so I'm really lucky I had my mum supporting me going to the doctors because I had a really horrible GP who kind of just didn't want to acknowledge that I needed to be referred that she basically didn't have the humility to just go I can't help you as a general practitioner I need to refer you on because we've tried all these different things and they're not working so I got referred to gynae probably about eight nine months after this so it's kind of that long back and forth 
Um, and it was only because my mum saw this tiny article in a newspaper about endometriosis and she's like, I think that you have this. So we kind of like took this little newspaper clipping into the doctors and she was like, my daughter has this, she needs to be referred to gynae. And alongside this, I'd been referred for a transvaginal ultrasound and it was the first thing I'd ever had because I was only in my early 20s. I hadn't had a smear, hadn't had anything at all inside me like that. And it was so painful. I was crying. It was just the most excruciating pain I've ever experienced. And then I went back to the doctors for my results. And I was due to go for a gynae appointment a few weeks before, but I was in so much pain I couldn't go. And I went in and I saw this doctor and she was like, oh, your scan's inconclusive. You just have to go for another one. Like you're just popping out for a walk, like really blase about yeah. it. And I was like, I don't know if I can have another one. I was like, it was so painful and I'm just worried about my symptoms. And she was like, oh, if you really cared about your health, you would have gone to your appointment. And oh it's God. things like that. And I and I walked out of there and I was so upset. And I then was trying like in this interim period of seeing an endometriosis specialist, getting some further information and I'd been out, been in, a, in and out of A&E probably like twice a week for like three or four months. And I went back and saw a different GP who was absolutely lovely. And she was like, let me just have a look at your scan and see if I can see anything. And she said, oh, I can see traces of endometriosis on your scan. So then I got referred to an endometriosis specialist. And to this day, he's still my endometriosis specialist. And as soon as I walked in there, he was like, the only surefire way to diagnose endometriosis is a less is a laparoscopy kind of these are the pros and cons of it it's totally up to you and I think mm. I had a laparoscopy and that was 2016 so I had endometriosis on my bowel my left ovary and on my womb so he removed all of that um and then I was also given um Zolodex so medical menopause just to try and I guess suppress as much as the symptoms as possible and to obviously try and reduce any endometriosis growing back and I was really naive and I thought fantastic and at this point where I'd had to leave my job because I was so ill I kind of just got pushed out I was then doing a bit of temp work but then I got so poorly before my op that I couldn't work so after my op I was like great I can get back to work I can get like back on my path to having a career and then about six months later, I was in and out of hospital with pelvic inflammatory disease. I think in a year I had it about five or six times. So I went back and saw him again. He put me back on the list. I had some more Zolodex, which was absolutely horrific. Makes me shudder, still at the thought of it in 2017. So I had my second op and I had more endometriosis grow back, bowel, left ovary, womb. And he also diagnosed me with adenomyosis. And I had no clue what it was. I didn't even know it existed and kind of the correlation between endometriosis and adenomyosis. And I think this is the issue is because there's some overlaps with it as well. Can um, you just explain so for those people who don't, because it's quite common to have, well, I don't know how common it is, but I, I know um, several people have the both, don't they? Um, could you just, yeah. just explain adenomyosis? Yeah, so my understanding of what I've been told is that it's tissue that grows in the wall of the womb. So um, it gives you symptoms. So heavy, painful periods, uh, pain during sex. And for me, I've experienced kind of a lot of pressure on my bladder. Um, and the, 
the real problem I think with adenomyosis which I struggle more with than endometriosis is the only way to cure it is to have a hysterectomy so it's not like with endometriosis although having laparoscopies isn't a cure um, and isn't kind of a surefire way of getting rid of it whereas they can obviously go in and remove endometriosis and sometimes you get some relief a little bit for a period of time with adenomyosis the only way to get rid of it is to have a hysterectomy and being told that at, I think I was like 24 haven't I hadn't had I hadn't had children I was kind of thinking me and my partner that we want to have children and we obviously want to start kind of exploring this but basically I'm just going to have to live with it until I either have a baby or I have a hysterectomy um so yeah I think that was really difficult and then kind of within this time frame of the two laparoscopies I developed really horrific chronic back pain I think as a result of years of kind of the intensity of being like hunched and scrunched over in pain and obviously it affects your posture and it's just really unpleasant so I'd been referred to a pain specialist um and I'm still under pain management today which is it's quite sad because I feel like I'm not progressing with my pain getting better it's only got worse over the years so um they kind of looked into different treatment offers and one thing that they do is different injections in points in your back or your pelvis so I've had three lots of facet joint injections which is lumbar points in your back um, which haven't done anything unfortunately and then I also had a denervation in my back where they go in and burn off the severed nerves um, which is incredibly painful because you're you're basically awake when they're doing this with no sedation just local anesthetic and um, I've had injections into my pelvis as well so um, yeah so kind of within the first two laparoscopies there was kind of this extra layer of chronic pain and I remember once I was off work for about four months because my back was just so bad I, I had my third laparoscopy end of 2020 so and then I had my fourth surgery so my third one was December 20 and by about July 21 I was in agony again so within six months I was basically back at square one again I went back to see my endometriosis consultant privately because just the wait list alone to see him for a consultation was like 18 months. I'm really glad I did because he, I remember when I came around from surgery and he said, oh, your bowel was stuck to your pelvis. I've had to unstick it. But endometriosis had grown back all around there on my ovary again, my wound, but it also got on my bladder and my right side this time. And I had two big cysts on my fallopian tubes. He's like, if I hadn't operated now, you would have lost your tubes. Mm. I've also been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, and I'm also concerned that I've got endometriosis around my sciatic nerve as well. Do you think for both of you actually throwing out there, obviously you've had years of, especially in the early years, years of gaslighting from um, medical professionals. Do you think early diagnosis would have helped anything sort of to where you are now? Yeah. You know, more awareness from, from a medical professional when you were going in in your early, you know, not even early teens when you, you know, you turn 11. It, because it's an average of eight years, isn't yeah. it, uh, for diagnosis? And yeah. we know the women's health strategy. I mean, you probably rolled your eyes when you saw how much <laughs> money they were giving to endometriosis. I think people don't think about all of that impact. Yeah. So, like, if I could go back to when I was like 12, and if a doctor had said to me, 
this isn't right, your period being like this, I'm going to refer you to gynae. Even being that young, for me, it would have been a no-brainer. I'd been like, yeah, I need to know. Like, I, I, if I could foresee into the future now of what our lives would be, I would want to be referred straight away. Although it's scary going to, like, doc- all these hospital appointments and having exams and stuff, if people have these options and they know what they're entitled to and what, what guidelines there are and what the procedures are, it lets people make their own decision, but... I feel like when we were younger, we did we weren't even given that decision or choice of what we would want or not want. No, no, we didn't know. And and also, not only did you not know, um, your your parents didn't know. You know, we we, no. we didn't have a clue. Um, the information's not there. We we just not taught this even in school. Are we were taught about how to put a condom on in in sex education or the stupid things? But it's why so not, wrong, isn't why it? aren't we taught about all these things? So even that your mum, you know, being a nurse, you being yeah, a nurse. Yeah. Well, was wasn't aware and and Anna because yours was very fast growing it yeah. must it must have I know you don't we don't want to look back and go oh my god if only somebody had seen it yeah. before but that awful gynecologist that dismissed you yeah I think the reality is and I've had surgeons say it to me that they could probably guarantee if they'd have operated when I was 15 that I wouldn't have had the bowel um, impact I've had today because by the time he got to my bowel, bearing in mind I was 17, I had to have it resected. And once you've resected the bowel, yes, it can function again, but the damage is done, you know, the, the that's the issue. And it's the same with once they've excised it off my bladder, and because it had grown so much into my bladder. So basically endometriosis is, if you can imagine like a tree, it roots into the organ. So it just literally spreads into the organ the way it grows. Um, And I've had to have re- my bladder resected. And your bladder is incredibly sensitive. It's your most sensitive organ. So it doesn't recover very well after surgery. So the more surgery you have, the less it functions later on. I've lived with my indwelling catheter for four years now yeah. um, it's it it's debilitating and for me it, it robbed me of so much you know it took my education away from me um as much as I tried and tried and yes I passed my A-levels and I did really well in my A-levels but I didn't have the strength to go to university because I couldn't live away from home I was constantly in and out of hospital having various treatments and this is the issue like from the work we've done with menstrual health project with the toolkits we've created we um you know we we've worked with specialists to know the nice guidelines that doctors follow and you can be referred to a gynecologist at any age because there's pediatric gynecologists so the fact that that doctor years ago told me oh well you can't until you're 16 is absolute rubbish you know and but still to this day we're 2023 and teenagers are getting refused referrals because they're being told they're too young and that's not the case if they're missing school they're missing times with their friends they're bed bound in their bed with their periods that's not normal that And the little that the general public know, they think it's just a menstrual health condition and that's it, that it doesn't affect every other part of your body. And 
it doesn't spread for everyone, but there's a high percentage of people that have it elsewhere in their body. You know, we've yeah. we've got a lady on our trustee board who's got it on her. So she's got thoracic endometriosis, which is on her lung. So it's like, you know, it can spread anywhere. Yeah. And that isn't known. I think that's what we want to do with Menstrual Health Project is create these toolkits and to go into schools to like improve education. Because years it's been, don't talk about your periods. I I just feel like it's still so like prehistoric and so kind of black patriarchal, and isn't it? it really yeah, is. it, is. it really is. And, and I just and another thing that is why why do if every single GP was to not question a young <laughs> girl in pain. Why Why do they think a 12-year-old girl would make up that she's in pain? What benefit, what What actual benefit you're is it? You're really cross It now. really yeah. pisses me oh, off. You're going to get me cross. Because it's like, who actually wants to be poked and put, who wants to spend exactly. like a hand on an operation for the sake? The thing is as well, like, and me and Anna always say to people, like, you know your body. And I have never, ever been wrong about my health. Like, when it's even talking to like the department trying to get through to your consultant and stuff, like the way you're spoken to, like you're ringing up about a telly you're waiting to be delivered. No, this is my health. And you get told you're being over emotional, you're being aggressive, you're being angry. And it's like, but this is my health. I'm, I'm having to fight for my health. And it's draining when there's mistakes and there's misinformation and there's no accountability ever. You mentioned earlier about your toolkit. What do you hope to, what are your toolkits like and what do you hope to, to sort of achieve yeah, and help about, people? Yeah, about the charity as well. But... We started it over my uh, dining room table. <laughs> That's where the best projects <laughs> begin. Yeah. After so many, for, me and Anna had so many frustrated conversations with each other about like our own care, where we both use our social media to advocate. We'd get so many messages from people. And thought of a charity initially, I think it was no. More- you know like a support kind of community we've got such a community online that we've created throughout our Instagram pages that we just thought we need to do something that's bigger than just us because we're only just one person you know like Gabs is her own person so there's only so much you can do with responding to comments and messages and stuff and we do try our very best to like reply to everybody but it's difficult, you know, especially when we're not well as well. So we were just sat around and we were like, let's start a charity. <laughs> and, but when it came down to the nitty gritty, when I tell you it's hard work, it's such hard work. It is. But we but like it, a challenge though. I like I like setting goals for really like, not unrealistic, but things where you're like, that's probably going to be quite difficult and stressful, but let's just roll with it and see let's what happens. Let's just do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's something you're passionate about, yeah. isn't it? That's yeah. the difference. That and that's, that's and what, yeah, it yeah. is. It does. It drives you forward, doesn't it? And I think that was what the key thing is we had was the drive to create change within a certain sector. And for us, obviously, we're very passionate about improving um education and awareness around endometriosis and adenomyosis but we wanted it to be menstrual health in general because there is so little kind of information surrounding other conditions like PMDD 
and PMS and PCOS and fibroids. And for us, our toolkits were more to, we created the endometriosis diagnostic toolkit first. So that's uh, more of a general one round endometriosis for everybody, but basically what the symptoms are, how to access um, support, how to access a referral via the NICE guidelines. So if your GP is refu refusing your referral, request it. Um, and then it goes through the impact it has on you as a teenager, fertility, menopause, all of these different things. Um, and then we created our menstrual health toolkit for under 18s, which is um, for schools in particular. It's a free uh, downloadable PDF document. So you can download it to your phone um, or print it off. And it's access for all the right information. So it teaches you about menstrual health. What is menstrual health? What is your menstrual cycle? what happens, different types of blood that you get. Because again, that's something no one ever told me is the different color blood that you get. Yeah. You know, no. I had no idea what yeah. was going on with me. And it's like, when it comes out brown, you're like, am I dying? What's wrong with me? Yeah. Because you don't, because you don't get told these things, do you? Yeah. We wanted to have everything in one place, make it really like reader friendly, like really to the point, not like full of medical jargon, but just straightforward things that like we would want when we when we were younger and I think our stance on it is that there isn't currently a cure for endometriosis so it's like having something that people can have that's easy to access it's free and it's really simple but it's really effective mm. yeah, yeah so you can signpost people can't you it's not it's yeah. almost like an umbrella for that yeah. whole, the whole of the the, the men, anything sort of menstrual which is so needed. It is. And and it can yeah. grow, can't it? I mean, you're you're you've only just started and your website's amazing with the with the amount of information on there. So much information. And, and I have to say, what what you've what any without all your diagnosis, what you've achieved is is amazing. But you're doing this from a place of chronic pain, not knowing what's around the corner for either of you. Yeah. Apart from they've got a holiday coming up soon. Yeah. <laughs> but apart yeah. from that, um, I think, you know, you're sort of, our, our girls are a little bit younger than you, but um, your sort of generation, I, I, I love just it. take my bloody hat, not that I've got a hat, but if I did have one, <laughs> I'm completely, anyway. I couldn't keep it on my head now. I've got a little head anyway. Um, <laughs> but I think you're at both absolutely fantastic to do Thank all this you. from a plate, from where you, you're coming yeah. from. It's such strength such strength I, wish I think I it's really therapeutic for us as well and the the um the menstrual health toolkit for under 18s was an absolute labor of love but also a labor of absolute mental breakdown because we I spent think... about 10 months doing it because top secret with our projects because we just want to make it perfect that yeah. people can really really utilize these things and we want people to be like I used your toolkit and I got referral or yeah. I now know about this and and can it, they do that can they do that now Gabs is it is yeah. all because when I yeah when I looked at it it looked pretty set up and pretty so if somebody's listening to this or they've got a daughter or a niece yeah. um you know that they can think right I, I think they might have that they can go to your website now yes yeah, support and we've had amazing feedback regards to people taking it into GPs and getting the referral they've needed and yeah. then going on seeing their consultant. So that's like, for me, it 
being poorly is such a negative in your life it like controls everything and this is our positive we can't fail another generation there's so many things linked to our menstrual health aren't aren't there there's so many things linked to our hormones so you've you've got great scope within your charity as it grows to include all all those things which is fantastic and you've got an event coming up haven't you yes, in um, <laughs> july is is it july yeah you've got an afternoon it tea is. event um and is this your first is this your first event and you know tell us tell us all about it what's Give happening us the deets. yeah so basically within one week we got registered we put out our second toolkit and then we went should we just plan an event on top <laughs> and we wanted to do something me and Anna were like well, what do we like that kind of represents us as well that people are like oh that's really nice and it would be kind of a nice event so we like afternoon tea everyone loves afternoon tea yeah but we've got so we've got three speakers so we've got one who is doing a session on like how to um kind of take control of your menstrual cycle and be aware of what's going on and kind of um how to to manage it basically and then um she's a menstrual well-being coach and then we have a mindset coach who's going to do a mindfulness session on how to um take control of your anxiety um and then we're doing a patient advocacy session so how to advocate for yourself the charity we've got so much planned in a sense working with schools we've got we've had real interest with schools wanting to work with us and workplaces wanting to work with us to kind of improve their um support on women's health in the workplace so we've got a lot coming up I've just I'm going to be out of action for a couple of months so I'll have to hand the reins to gabs yeah i think it'll be a little bit of a back-to-back um but kind of along with trying to figure out why my bowel hates me my bladder hates me my body hates me i'm also trying to start my fertility journey which is also an one of those extra layers then of trying to trying to spin too many plates all at once um do as women isn't it i suppose you're well you i suppose you more than anyone you're a little bit against the clock there aren't you because of your endometriosis do you know what this has literally been my mind has been split so I basically I can't as soon as I lose the required weight for BMI I could be referred straight away because of my endometriosis so I've already been told my egg count is slightly lower and I can my endometriosis since having my coil out is growing back a lot quicker as well so I'm at this weird crossroad of what do I try and work out first? Because I've got to tie things up, haven't we? Otherwise, yes. we could be here all <laughs> so, day talking so, to so you So where can people. people find you then? So website and Instagram. What? www.menstrualhealthproject.org.uk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's our Instagram handle? Because I know you're looking I'm at sure. I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's the brain fog. So on Instagram, we're Menstrual Health Project nice and simple we'll put all that on the um show notes as well and put this out but yeah and we're on facebook we're on twitter but if you go on to one of our yeah we're not very technical so thankfully one of our trustees does all of that but um (laughs) if anyone ever wants to message us or has any queries or anything at all me and anna are always really open and happy to talk to people um if they want more of the like nitty gritty reality then we've got our personal pages 
And so like I'm battle with Lendo, Gabs is all things Gabs. It's just showing the reality. Of... Yeah. We love talking about poo and periods and being honest about our mental health and things. But just one no. quick question. Where is your, um? because I'm aware we haven't said where your um, July event, your July afternoon tea is. It's Liverpool. In, so it's Malmaison um, on Albert Dock in Liverpool. Um, the you... famous Albert Dock. Brilliant. Okay. Thank yeah. you both so much. Thanks yeah. for having us. Thank, Thank, Thank you. you for sharing your stories. Yeah. So, Lou, we are on to chapter three, which is Warriors and Leaders of uh, Janina Ramirez's book, Femina. How are you getting on with it? Do you know what? I enjoyed this chapter. It's I have good. been, I, but, you know, I, I will admit it, I've been struggling with this book because I do like a fiction. I really enjoyed this. I got quite angry at this chapter yeah. as well. Um, it's just the overriding response through the whole of this chapter that how can what a warrior or warriors be female, especially yeah. the Viking warriors? Um, it just didn't fit the traditional patriarchy assumptions of, of women as warriors. No. And it's only through like science and DNA, uh, the laborious and the meticulous um you know, of defining of it all that that's actually brought to the fore. That actually, the warriors are women. There was a lot of warrior women out there. Yeah, um, yeah. Because she starts in twenty. She always just realised now. Got to uh, chapter three, and every chapter now starts with a discovery, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Which is what I love. She starts mm. with a discovery, sort of more recent discovery, and then goes back to what to what that what we found. So. We've, we, we meet um, osteoarchaeologist Anna Kellstrom um, and she's finally been proved right because in 1878, archaeologists excavating the Viking town of Birka in Sweden, Sweden uncovered the singular ornate 10th century burial tomb, didn't they, believed to hold the remains of a great warrior. Um, alongside the remains were a trove of weapons, sword, spear, horses, a game board likely to be used for military strategies. And because of this, it was presumed, as you said, Lynn, male. that it was male. A hundred years later, however, in, 19, in the seven, 1970s, um, Berit Vilkins, another female specialist, examined the bones and noted the, noted the problems with the original male assignment. Um, but it wasn't until 2017, as I say, science caught up with her. And, and after much searching, the DNA team could not find any Y chromosomes anywhere. They no. were looking for them, uh, but they did find a clear pattern of two X chromosomes. So this is but fascinating. The, exactly. And but the, the those team of experts who were largely female who found Burke, you know, discovered that Burke uh, warrior was actually female. They have been on the receiving end of threats and online abuse. Yeah, death threats in some cases. Oh, it's mad, isn't it? It's crazy. Um, yeah. Ramirez said far from a rigid patriarchal society. Um, the 10th century world of Burka was a place where gender was more fluid than yep. we might imagine. And women could assume a wide spectrum of roles. Gives us a glimpse of Viking age women in all their variety and complexity. Um, she also goes to diss, which, correct, rightly so, about the Viking hat, doesn't she, with the horns on? Yes. And this is just like she said, it's, it's dressing up. Yeah. Because one, it would be completely impractical to have two horns sticking out your head and you'd yeah. be seen because they'd be sticking out, yes. you know. 
Yeah, here I am. Yeah, here I am. <laughs> Here's my horns. Yeah. So, you know, what we are perceived to think of as a Viking, a, a Viking full stop, let alone, you know, a war proper warrior, completely blows it all out of the water. Um what, and what was interesting, this myth stems from the German designer, Carl yes. Emil Doppler, when he created stage costumes for exactly. Wagner's ring circle. It reminds me a bit, Lou, of, because um, uh, we're from the West Country, so people often say we sound like pirates. Um, but every, but the pirate, you know, um, arm, party, arm. Um, did you, I mean, you probably know, Lou, but that everyone believes that's how pirates talk. Um, um, but, but it actually comes from one Dorset man, actor Robert Newton, who in 1950 starred in Disney's Treasure Island as Long John Silver, and his West yeah. Country accent has become synonymous with pirates ever since. So it's a bit like this. It's this a load of bollocks. It's a load, it's a load of bollocks. <laughs> um, yeah. So Ramirez also tells us in 2017 that the DNA discovery of our female warrior has led to a lot of interest in Viking women. Yes. surge um she says the shattering of the taboo of women as the weaker sex through a combination of archaeology and forensic investigation is a distinctly 21st century phenomenon all manner of factors affected how women lived in the viking age and experiences were not universal versal but rather subject to class age background family and wealth there's so many presumptions we put oh. on history from what we're going through now isn't there most definitely so we sort of learn in many respects that viking women had the same in issues as women have always yes. had yeah it was how how keeping the house child raising birth. the child yeah yes. having, ch having children raising the child yeah and, and feeding the family basically but they also they did so much more yeah yeah they did um she she says that their rights they had more seem to have more rights than their southern european um counterparts um she says and they could own their own property divorce their partners if treated badly and run their own estates if their husband hit them a woman could demand a payment of a fine if he did this in front of a witness she would receive payment and could divorce him after the third blow I don't know why the third blow um, there are also cases where women request requested a divorce because their husband's dressed in f in a feminine manner oh I say mm. but women also played an essential part in the, in the spiritual life of Viking yeah. communities didn't they um so there, there is text that record that some women acted as seers known as a vulva which, which I thought was quite interesting is that like vulva I was going like to look it, like back up but yeah. I didn't get or Volvo or Volvo <laughs> the car. which means a holder of the magic staff yeah Yes. So they and of were course seers. you've got Freya, haven't you? Yes. They were seers. They've got the goddess Freya and the Valkyries, which were the Nor in Norse, yeah. Norse, Norse mythology. They, these are all women. The Freya and Valkyries are all women. Yeah. Um, they were any group of women who served the god Odin um, and were sent by him to choose the slain um, worthy of a place in Valhalla. Um, and what I loved, the, the bit that I absolutely loved about this chapter. She loved all this chapter. Oh, I did. But it's the uh, the gender norms we're looking at. So we've we've got these these skeletons that are overturned that have overturned our thinking um, of the social order, um, which extends to the afterlife as well. Um, but now today we might think of a tradesman as men, even mm. now, even trades today, man. Jen, tradesmen, tradesman. However, in Burka weights and scales uh, were used in the burials of tradesmen 
And these weights and scales were found in 32% of female graves and only 20% of male burials. Um, And Ramirez writes, Burka is a place where gender assumptions are continually challenged. And assessment of similar finds across Norway show a similar pattern. Trade was not the exclusive preserve of men. Um, and I love, I just got to say the Thor story. Go on, gender, say the Thor the story. gender fluidity yeah. of um, where in Norse mythology, yeah. this um, head of, he's, this king of the giants steals Thor's hammer. And um, so to get it back, they come up, him and his brother Loki come up with this story to send their, um, the goddess Freya to marry the king of giants and that he will give her then the the hammer she's having nothing to do with that which i love she's sticking two fingers up to yeah. them no thank you i know it's only yeah. a trick i'm not going to do that so thor dresses up as a bride as f- pretending to be freya loki dresses up as her handmaiden and off they go to get married to the, <laughs> to the giant the giant he doesn't lift his veil he's got this big veil on um they they get married the giant then gives him the um hammer and of course thor then relieve not relieves himself oh. that's something different <laughs> but he does kill him all they probably rather he did relieve himself <laughs> He reveals that easier. Would have been, would have saved a few lives. But he reveals himself and kills everybody with yeah. his hammer. And there's a statue of Odin in a dress. So this gender fluidity yeah. is. It's a thing. I, it's I, lo- I love it. And, and do you know what? We've had a lovely um, comment as well from um, Aline Boblin. And she says, Bravo for your elocution and managing to pronounce Queen. I didn't say it last Kinnitrit. week. I hadn't managed to even form sounds of her name in my head when reading chapter two. (laughs) What a woman she was. And Ethelfled and and Empress um, Irene. So much for the narrative that women in the Middle Ages were owned with no powers and didn't have a mind of their own. This chapter made me reflect on how much we might know, might never know about the female place in history Mm. and in art because of the misogynistic, systematic suppression of women's achievements, lives, scriptures, and arts. This is a loss for our children and our understanding of society and culture over the ages. Thank goodness for Femina. Thank you, um, Aline, because, yeah, it's really important. And, and she's hoping, Ramirez is hoping to undiscover all this. Can I just read out the last, her last par- paragraph? Because it's really important. She says, at least now, in part thanks to the Burka warrior woman, there are new ways of looking and thinking about gender, which are shaping our relationship with the past. With only her bones and her grave goods remaining, much of her story has been lost. But advances in technology are beginning to to allow these lost women written out the historical records for centuries to speak for us once again fantastic and next week we're going to be reading chapter four artists and patrons yes we are oh and it's the bayou tapestry that's gonna oh aline that'd be oh right she'll up be right up. she'll be right in France. there we'll be getting another comment i hope so foodie collective so once again no kel surprise um jinty's been cooking and this this week we've got some giant loaded peanut butter cookies 
from the six vegan sisters. I don't know who they are, but they they've are made fantastic. some nice cookies. They make some lovely cookies. They do savory, they do sweet stuff, they do lovely vegan cakes. It's obviously by their name, you'll guess they're vegan. Um, so uh, yeah, have, I've cut one in half, Lou. There, if you want. Oh, here we go. We're going in. Going in. Um, yeah. So these are loaded. These are loaded cookies. So these are made with uh, vegan butter, creamy peanut butter, a bit of sugar. There's no um, vulvas on this There's one. no vulvas, but there are. Um, oh, they're strumdly umptious. There are, yeah. Good. Mm, nice, aren't they? Very peanut there's, buttery. They, yeah, they are. They're, and they're loaded with chocolate. And they're not any old chocolate. They're vegan hotel chocolate. Nice. And I've got a nut in my mouth. Yeah, they're walnuts. Um, and there are some vulvas in there, but they're chopped up. They're walnuts and pecan, pecans <laughs> oh, inside God, I wish them. I'd known that. And there's a few rolled, rolled oats. So good, you know, good for a bit of energy. Um, and, and basically, they're, again, they're so easy, but so tasty. It's a case of throwing it all in, really. Um, beating, beating your sugar and your baking soda um, and your butter together. And then you kind of fold in everything else. Mm. Bung them in the oven. Uh, for about 10 to 14 minutes, um, about 180 degrees, and they come out like that. Very tasty. Well, I done. thought they'd be quite nice with a bit of ice cream or something, wouldn't they? Oh. Mm. Mm. Even the cookie dough, you know, you can buy cookie dough now just before you even cook them. I tried a bit of the cookie dough before I cooked them. That was nice. Was it nice? It I was. used to love that as a child. I know. Putting your finger in the bowl, oh. licking the spoon. Yeah. When your mum had been cooking. Trying to lick the whisk where the whisk was all a weird mm. shape and getting it all over your face. Your tongue stuck. Oh, yeah. Oh. Mm. So let us know if you have a go at those. Yes, please. Right, Lou. W.I. Now, you had some unbelievable things to help with your sleep, yeah, didn't we, you? How we did you get them? I was... We were kind of gifted these, weren't we? Were. They? So they were, uh, it's, sleep, it's called Be Rested. It's sleep support from the company Unbelievable. So, and these were little sleep capsules. Well, they were the size of horse pills for one, but you could actually sprinkle them into a cool drink, um, a cold drink or over food. I just put it in some water. So it was really quite good actually, because I'd had a two or three nights of, really poor sleep this week so I thought right and I'd forgotten to do this you know you know me life's running at 100 miles an hour and yeah. I'd forgotten to do the WI so I did this last night so I took them in water necked it back wasn't unpleasant to taste and um I got into bed at just gone nine o'clock I was asleep before nine thirty. Then I woke up at 5 30 this morning oh, so I reckon that's, that's a good, good for eight you hours. oh my god yeah so in the in these cap capsules, caplets, whatever you want to, they're not caplets. Actually, they're huge capsules. It's the royal jelly, the honey. So that's why gents didn't try them. them. Um, but there's chamomile flower, lavender flower, um, hops, uh, cherry, magnesium, saffron, and a load of other merry merry ingredients. Yeah, all natural. But um, so I'm gonna so I'm gonna keep going this week and um, see, and I will report back again just to make sure. Are they? Because I'm just looking at the back of your little leaflet there. It says be calm. Is it just for sleep or is it just is so it there's a be for anxiety? So there's as two well? things. So there's a be um be rested, which is a sleep um Oh, and there's a different one. Yeah, that I got sent. And then there's the be calm for relaxation and well being. But I was looking oh. um this morning at what was in the be calm and they all look really again, magnesium, raw jelly, lemon balm, passion flower. 
Um, yeah, lo- lots of things. But I think they've done their research very well. Well, so I, I think when back. you well done, Lou, because when you don't sleep, you'll bloody try. You've tried it all sorts, haven't you? Oh, so it's anything. My worth bedside a try. table. I could actually open, open a pharmacy or a chemist, <laughs> chemist. as Jints would like to say. <laughs> Um, and you've got a, you've we got oh, the new WI. I'm going to carry on with that. But yeah. um, talking of sunscreen and being um, Skin Cancer Awareness Month, um, we just want to thought we thought a quick WI. Well, Jints came up with this this morning because she's the brains of the operation. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so check your sunscreen. Is it in date? So you know, on the back of your sun of your products, there's a little like half open jar. And it'll say 6M, 12M, 24M, whatever. It's 12, 24 months, 12 months, 6 months. Please go check it. If it's out of date and you know you've had it open there for five years, chuck it in the bin and start again. Yeah. Because some people keep their sun creams year to year when they go exactly. abroad and things and use it in between. And you think if it's been out in the sun, it's going yeah. to, you know, destabilize in some way. So please go and check. There you go. Check your sunscreens are all in date, your SPFs. Look after your skin. Yeah. quote for the week it's that time so gents you've got a quote for us this week I have got a quote a very short one um but I thought it sort of resonated a little bit with our lovely guests today um it's from Brene Brown I love who her many a quote from good quote from Brene Brown uh, she says if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding shame can't survive she did a whole thing on shame fantastic thank you so much and what a week what a week Lou yeah yeah fantastic so we hope your tea's you not like gone. that word oh, do you know don't what you? I do I've got to stop saying it you know when you get a word and that's all yeah. you can reply with yeah right so we hope your tea's not gone cold and that you'll join us next Sunday for the collective we would love you to subscribe favorite and review our podcast it really helps us spread the word head over to our Instagram page, Womankind Collective, to leave comments or DM us with your thoughts or watch us and our guests on our famous Womankind Collective YouTube channel. And lastly, you'll find all the links, the recipes, the guest details, and our hashtag Where's My Clinic campaign, the petition for a menopause clinic in Devon on the podcast show notes. Lovely. I'm off to find me Twifflers and me muffins, Lou. I'm going to put some of these cakes on them. Oh, delish. (laughs) 